0: on? No. I feel lopsided. Eighty percent of the audience is on this side. I just feel like I ought to be. I'm tilting. Yeah, but that's that's the left. Yeah, that's right. It's all relative. Okay. The only announcement that I remember. Is, uh, that on, uh, the 11th, we're having men's, uh, prayer breakfast. There'll also be a deacon's meeting on that particular, uh, that particular Saturday morning. That's the only thing. And then I will be leaving for Kiev on the 15th. That's not an excuse for playing hooky. See, I know. I know how sheep are. Uh, Tommy will be here, and so that should be, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father, it's such a great privilege to come before your throne of grace this evening and to be able to gather together at the end of this last year, looking forward to a new year, a new year of opportunity to proclaim the truth of your word, to witness to those around us, and to continue to pursue spiritual maturity. May this be a year where we consistently look forward to how we can uh, mature, how we can take advantage of every opportunity, Uh, We can, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, redeem the time that uh, rather than allowing it to to be wasted or go fallow or spend in not-so-profitable pursuits, that we can spend our time focused upon you, our relationship with you, fulfilling the mandates you have for us in Scripture and pressing on to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Acts, we pray that we might be challenged to it by the testimony of the Apostle Paul as he faces those who are accusing him, that we might learn from his uh, stability, his trust in you, from his grace orientation to his enemies, and that we might continue to apply the principles that we learn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. We're going to start in verse... Uh, Twelve will pick up a little review, just so we're back on track with where we've been. But the focal point here is on Paul's defense. He uses two words, or we find two words in the text. One is apologia, and apologia. Both of these have the sense of making a defense or giving an answer. This is the same word that Paul uses, or that Peter uses. Excuse me, and and First Peter. Uh, Two fifteen. That we should always be ready to make a defense for the answer, or give an answer for the hope that is within us. It, it, its primary use as a technical term was a legal defense, but it has to do with any sort of informal answer based uh, related to why we believe what we believe, and that's basically the way we'll see it used of Paul. This is not uh, in Acts twenty six. This is not a formal legal defense in this setting because he's already made an appeal to uh, Caesar. This is where we find ourselves uh, in the middle of Acts chapter 25, where he makes an appeal to Caesar because he recognizes that Festus, who is the procurator, is not going to uh, release him, even though there's he can't even find a charge to bring against Paul. He recognizes his innocence, but like many politicians... He would rather do something that is expedient with reference to currying favor with uh, certain political uh, parties or power blocks rather than doing the right thing. And that's where we find Festus. But let's go back to about um, verse 9 in chapter 25, which it states this uh, very clearly. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. That's his motivation. God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us that this was his primary motivation. Even though he should be looking for justice, he should be looking for righteousness, he is seeking to do uh, the Jews a favor. He doesn't want to exacerbate the increasing tensions between the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. So he, um, if things get bad, then he's going to be in trouble with those who are over him, the legate in Roman legate in Syria, all the way up to uh, Caesar, who is Nero. So what he wants to do is make sure that things don't get any worse. So he answers Paul uh, and says, "Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before uh, before me on these charges?" And his point here is taking Paul away from Caesarea, where they brought him two years before. Here's a map uh, that I've shown you before. Caesarea Maritima is located northwest of Jerusalem up here on the coast, and uh, this is a fabulous city that was developed by Herod the Great as a major, uh, major uh, seaport. On the on the Eastern Mediterranean, and this gives you an overview, uh, aerial view of the whole area and the city at the time. In the ancient world, probably went far back into this area that where there's open land today. uh, Maybe even as far back as the modern city that's away from the coast. Here, it's one of the most developed uh, archaeological sites uh, in Israel, and it's just beautiful. Here's a labeled slide looking down at the harbor itself. This is the area where Herod's promontory palace was located. Then over here, there's a much later period crusader castle. And this area here, you can see the darker water here. Uh, This is where Herod built the breakwater, uh, the areas where the ships would come in and where they would be uh, protected uh, in harbor. And this is an artist's reconstruction of what that harbor looked like. And you can see a vast number of ships could come in, so it was uh, quite large, uh, uh, quite extensive, and uh, quite, quite beautiful. And this is a seat of power for the Roman Empire. Caesarea was a Roman town. So he, they would take Paul from a place where he's protected, and the irony here is that the pagan legal system of Rome was providing him with protection, whereas the system that was dominated by those who should be protecting him, those who alleged that they were worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with an emphasis within their theology, the theology of the Pharisees, was built on a, a belief in righteousness, yet they had subverted righteousness, and all they were concerned about was uh, coming up with with a facade of justice so that they could execute Paul just as they had just as they had executed the Lord Jesus Christ so Paul recognizing this in verse ten says i 'm standing before caesar 's tribunal where I ought to be tried he, he as a Roman citizen he has the right to go to uh, Rome and to be judged before Caesar. Uh, he he recognizes that if he is taken to uh, to Jerusalem, that he will not be treated with justice. This is what becomes clear uh, in verse eleven. His statement of his innocence is in verse ten, where he says, "I have done no wrong." To the Jews, as you also very well know. So notice how he appeals to exactly what Festus should know and what he's recognized. And then in verse 11, Paul presents a couple of conditional statements related to his own position. The first first statement in verse 11, he says, If then I am a wrongdoer, assuming that I have done wrong, and committed anything worthy of death, he, he then says, I don't refuse to die. He says, it's not about the punishment for the crime. If I had committed, uh, a crime that was worthy of death, I would be more than willing to pay the price for that. And the second point he makes emphasizes his innocence, and he says, if these Jewish, if these charges from the Jews, if that these men accuse me of, uh, if if none of these things is true, of which these men accuse me of, then no one can hand me over to them. So his first point is that if he's guilty, he doesn't mind paying the penalty. But if he's not guilty, then no one should turn him over to the Jewish leadership. First of all, because it wouldn't be legal, because Paul, as a Roman citizen, should not be subject to the justice of of the Sanhedrin, and second, that if he was released to them, he would not be given justice. He would, in fact, be executed. So at this point, Paul has recognized that that Festus, uh, that, uh, rather Festus is not going to uh, do anything any better than Felix had done, that he's not going to turn him over uh, or release him and that, in fact, he'll probably just continue to keep him in jail. So uh, Paul wants to move things forward, so he appeals uh, to Caesar. And in verse uh, 12 we read, then, uh, or at the end of verse 11 he says, So I appeal to Caesar. Now this causes Festus to go into a conference with his uh, council. And he has to confer with the council. The council here is not the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin wouldn't have any power or any authority over an issue involving Roman law. But Festus has to uh, evaluate this in terms of his own advisors, and these advisors were known as the concilium, the Latin term. Uh, The Greek that we find in the text is sumbulion, but the Latin phrase that referred to the council for the procurator was the concilium. So Paul's appeal has a specific legal term. It's called a provocatio, P-R-O-V-O-C-A-T-I-O, which was the citizen's right, the Roman citizen's right to appeal to Caesar for judgment. This right to appeal had its origins and among the Romans from 509, that any Roman citizen had the right to appeal to the highest authority in Rome for justice in the event that they uh, did not agree with any, uh, any verdict in their trial. So he appeals to the, the highest official, which uh, originally it was to a panel of citizens, but now it is to the highest official in the land, which in this case would be Nero, and Nero is the one who would hear the trial. But uh, Suetonius tells us in his history of Rome that, that it, it was indeed Nero who would hear the case. He wouldn't render the verdict. It would be passed down later on uh, in writing. Now, we have no record of that because the book of Acts ends prior to his uh, actual uh, hearing before Nero but it is assumed that he was released because it's it's when you put the details together uh Paul would have gone on a second uh, or or actually a fourth missionary journey probably made it to Spain he made it to areas across the uh, Adriatic to the uh Yugoslavia and finally came back to Rome during a second imprisonment which is when he was executed so in verse 12 we read that Festus conferred with his council and answered you have appealed to caesar so to caesar you shall go now at this point this is set there's nothing that can be done to change this because paul has has claimed his right as a roman citizen that appeal has been evaluated by the council and festus has ruled on it so what happens next is not another form of an appeal But what we see with with the appearance of Agrippa, and this is Herod Agrippa II, what we see here with the appearance of Herod Agrippa and his sister uh, Bernice is that Festus is trying to figure out what in the world he's going to charge Paul with. Because for Paul's case to be advanced up the line... And 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 Festus has decided that's really the best deal for him because it gets him off the hook with the Jewish leadership, it gets him off the hook with Paul, and he just gets to uh, kick it down the road to somebody else and let it be somebody else's problem in some other geographical location. But the problem is, to kick it down the road, he's got to have a significant enough charge to bring against Paul, and at this point he doesn't believe he has one. So when Herod Agrippa and Bernice visit, he's going to bring them in into the situation to see if they can come up with a charge that he can use before uh, the Roman legal system because the charges that he's seen so far just have to do with with, um, uh, theological or religious issues among the Jews. It doesn't have anything to do with Roman law, but he has to come up with something. So... Uh, in verse 13, we read, when the days had elapsed, so se- when several days had elapsed, so if uh, some time goes by, because uh, remember, Festus has just been the procurator for a short time. He, I told you last time that he apparently came uh, to Caesarea to replace Felix. He was there three days, and then he headed to Jerusalem and spent ten days in Jerusalem uh, with the Jewish leadership, the first uh, couple of the first issue they brought up was the issue with Paul and the problem with Paul, and then so he hasn't been there but uh, about two weeks when he went back to uh, went back to Caesarea and begins to uh, talk with Paul and figure out uh, what he's going, what direction he's going to go. So he's been there two two and a half weeks at the most in this position. And it's not long after that, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer, when Herod Agrippa and Bernice have to come to visit him. This would be a protocol visit where they are coming at the beginning of his uh, time as procurator, where they are going to uh, spend some time with him and just recognize him in his new position. So in verse 14 we read, uh, While they were... Uh, while they were spending many days there, Festus had Paul's case, brought before the king, saying there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. So he's going to start to tell the story. But before we get there, uh, we need to look uh, briefly at the background on Agrippa II and Bernice. One of the reasons he brings this to them is because they're Jewish, they have a background in the situation in Israel. And in fact, even uh, Herod Agrippa II had somewhat of a reputation as being a pious Jew, so that that he's not just as as bad as his great grandfather Herod the Great or his um, uh, father Agrippa the He has some some involvement and interest in Jewish religious matters and some background. So he uh, uh, Festus is seeking his. Opinion, because he understands that this is probably pretty much a religious debate within within Judaism. Now Herod Agrippa the is the son of Herod Agrippa the He was also known as Marcus Julius Agrippa. His uh, he's uh, Agrippa the was the brother of Drus- Drusilla, who was married to Felix, and he is uh the, the brother also of Bernice. Uh he had he was educated in Rome. He was very sympathetic to Roman policies. He was only seventeen years old when his father died, and then he was uh brought up uh to be the ruler of basically Herod uh what had been Herod Philip's kingdom. He didn't immediately become king. That took a little time, but they uh, transitioned him into a position of authority. He ruled the area given to uh, Herod Philip that was mostly in the north, the area of what we now see as Lebanon, uh, the Galilee, parts of the Galilee at least, uh, but areas of Judea, Samaria, the southern part of Galilee still remained in Roman control. He was trusted by the Romans and allowed to appoint the high priest. Because he tended to meddle in the affairs of the high priest, and he appointed several different ones, it angered the Jews. He also angered them by building a palace that overlooked the temple compound, which, uh, again, they felt was Rome meddling in their affairs. As he grew in his uh, stature and his, his, in his experience, uh, Nero added several cities and villages around the Sea of Galilee in the southern part of Gal- Galilee uh, to his domain. He made his capital at Caesarea Philippi. I don't think that's that's not going to be on the other map. Caesarea Philippi is in the north, and is the most northern area uh, in uh, Israel. It's Caesarea Philippi is just. Uh, very close to the area of Dan. Remember the description in the Old Testament was that the borders of Israel were from Beersheba to Dan, Beersheba in the south and Dan uh, in the north. So he made his capital there and changed the name of Caesarea Philippi to Neronius in honor of the emperor Nero, just another way in which he tried to curry favor with with Rome. Now he's accompanied by Bernice, and here I have a, uh, try to get a flow chart in here, or a geneal- genealogical chart. At the top we have Herod the Great, and these are his various wives. Doris is off the screen. But, the lo- but he, it, through his second wife named uh, Maryamne, uh, he had, uh, or excuse me, his first wife Maryamne, he had a son named Aristobulus, who married a woman named Bernice, and his son was Herod Agrippa I. So Herod Agrippa I is a grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa I had three children, uh, Herod Agrippa II, uh, Bernice, and Drusilla. Bernice married a, her first marriage was to a cousin, Herod of, of Chalice, and uh, she remained uh, married to him until Herod Agrippa II became uh, king over uh, the area of Galilee and Lebanon, at which time she divorced Herod of, Cal- of Calus and moved in or moved in with uh, Herod Agrippa II. Now there were always these rumors about, uh, some incest, but that was never, never proven, but they were, uh, very popular rumors about them during this time. Uh, that's, uh, suggested that that wasn't true because during her time with, uh, with her brother, she sought out and married, uh, Polemon, the king of Cilicia, and then she, uh, remained married to him for a while. But, after a while, she divorced him, moved back in with her brother uh, later on, during the time of the Roman revolt, which began i mean the Jewish revolt against Rome in sixty six she and uh, uh, she and her brother tried to prevent the Jews from revolting against Rome. They were unable to do that, so they swore their allegiance to Rome and they left uh, the Middle East and moved to Rome later on, after of course. Uh, the defeat of the Jews, remember Vespasian was the general who originally led the assault against Jerusalem, but at that time Nero died, so they called a halt to their assault activities. They pulled back to Caesarea, which was where they kept their uh, five cohorts where they were where they were stationed and uh, um, Vespasian headed back to Rome, where he became emperor. his son Titus took over command of the Roman armies, took over the assault of Jerusalem, and eventually was victorious in destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple in A.D. 70. Bernice was a mistress to both Vespasian and later on to Titus, so she was obviously working uh, every angle that she could, but that just gives you a little bit of an idea here um, on the character of these two people who are going to hear about Paul's case, this is another way in which Luke is using a little irony here. That that as Festus uh, is bringing the case before Herod Agrippa and Bernice, he's he, he's getting uh, an, seeking an idea of justice from those who are somewhat morally challenged. So this gives you a little bit of a background there as to what's been going on. Now, when they arrive, our, when our own Festus brings this case before them, then we read uh, his presentation to them, and he says uh, there's a, at the end of verse 14, there's a man who was left a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against them. And so he's going to go on and and um, present what had happened with Paul, but what we see here in the background is that 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 Herod is really inter- I mean Herod Agrippa is really interested in being informed on this case and finding out more about uh, the apostle Paul. So in verses 14 through 21, we have this uh, review, this recitation of Paul's case and as he does this Festus is really trying to come up with some sort of legitimate angle for bringing a charge against uh the apostle Paul in verse 15 uh we read that uh that he he states uh, uh in his uh presentation to to uh Herod Agrippa when I was at Jerusalem so that takes the time back to just about 2 weeks before when he had gone to Jerusalem he says, the Jews, uh, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him. So again, he's recognizing that those who are hostile to Paul are the religious leadership in, uh, from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And they're asking, at that time they didn't uh, bring any evidence, They just asked for a sentence of condemnation against him, and they are seeking the death penalty. Now, the Jews did not have the judicial uh, authority to bring the death penalty. This is the same thing that happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't condemn him to death because they were under the authority of Rome. They had to appeal to Roman authority to pass the death penalty. But uh, Festus is not at all sure that Paul's done anything wrong to begin with, and second, that if he has done anything wrong, it's certainly not worthy of the death penalty. So what the Jews wanted and desired really went contrary to Roman law. Again, this shows an example of how people who have rejected the Scripture, when they are under conviction of the truth, they don't really care what the rules are, they don't care what the uh, what authority says they are reacting against the truth of God. This is just another example of Romans 1, 18 and following that men of unright men of who are unrighteous are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and they have rejected the truth of God, and so now they are suppressing that truth. And once again, when Paul is present, this just sort of takes the, the, opens the door into the cellar where they've managed to push God and push the truth and God is uh, threatening to come out and so they're reacting in anger. We see examples of that today in many different ways when people in the culture hear from Christians and Christians are, uh, speak out a little bit then these opposing forces really react in hostility and make all sorts of claims that that aren't true. We saw some examples of that in the recent thing with the uh, Doug Dynasty event and the statements that he made related to homosexuality. And we see it every uh, couple of years in the state of Texas when the Texas State Board of Education evaluates textbooks. Now, that's something that some of you might be interested in. I've got some information that I've been given related to this, but one of the most important things that, that Texans have done and Texas Christians have done over the last 40 or 50 years is that those who are qualified, those who are interested, have taken up a position t- and to serve the, school, uh, the Te- Texas State Board of Education and to evaluate textbooks and to determine whether or not, especially history textbooks, social studies textbooks, things of of that nature, to make sure that they are historically accurate and that they're not presenting a skewed political agenda. And this is coming up again this next year, and I've had some emails where – People on the State Board of Education are looking for volunteers who will work in this capacity. So some of you uh, might be interested in that or might know of somebody who would be interested in doing something like that. It is amazing the kinds of things that have come into certain textbooks. Uh, regarding the found founding fathers of the united states regarding the constitution regarding the american war for independence regarding things like just the uh, initial settlement of the pilgrims in massachusetts where there's no mention whatsoever of any religious beliefs at all and so as our young people are uh, come up with those kinds of textbooks they they basically get get brainwashed and their education is distorted into a totally secular agenda. And Texas is important just as California is because we buy such a huge number of textbooks. So when they, when publishers present these textbooks, the ones that Texas chooses, the ones that California choose become the primary textbooks that for everybody else in the, in the nation. So that's just one way in which we need to be uh, involved in countering the the pressure of the world to conform to it. And this is something that, you know, that Paul's dealing with here is the, the, the pressure from the uh, world system, which in, in Israel are the Jewish leadership, to conform because he doesn't conform to them. They are reacting in hostility and they want his life. Nothing Uh, nothing less will do. So it doesn't matter that they're violating the law in the process. They just want to kill Paul. And the principle we see here is negative volition isn't rational. It's irrational, and it operates on fear, and it operates on anger, and it's not operating on objectivity or evidence. So that puts Festus into a tough situation, in verse uh, 16, he says, he gives his answer to them that their attempts to have Paul uh, executed is not the custom of the Romans, and it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accuser. So again, we see this, this irony that this pagan legal system is what's protecting Paul and protecting his life. And they're doing it right, whereas the Jews who ought to know truth and ought to know what's right are the ones who want to subvert uh, subvert the law and subvert righteousness. So because Paul needs to be met with his accusers face to face, he needs to be able to make that defense and not just be uh, randomly charged with a crime and without any evidence then executed. So... Uh, Festus goes on to rehearse uh, the trial and to review the trial that had taken place in uh, Caesarea. Verse 17, he says, So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man brought before me. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting." But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So he's sort of reducing it down to the basic issue, which it no longer, notice this, it no longer has anything to do with what was going on on the Temple Mount. Remember back in, in chapter 23, 22 and 23, the issue was, or the, the charge was, that Paul had brought a Gentile into the Temple Mount. And now the the issue has left that behind. It's not even mentioned. The only thing that's mentioned is the issue of resurrection. So these charges uh, uh, that are brought against Paul don't have anything at all related to Roman law. Uh, And the only conclusion that Festus can come up with is that there's absolutely no violation of Roman law uh, whatsoever. So they the Jews have failed to accuse him of any charge of breaking the uh, breaking Roman law, and of having any kind of valid defense. But but Festus just doesn't have the courage to release Paul and to let him go. And because he has been so um, uh, so cowardly, Paul has not had to appeal to uh, to Rome and to Caesar. So Festus is dealing with these religious issues and disputes, and he uses an interesting term in verse 19 when he talks about their own religion. This is a Greek word. Sometimes I've seen this as a, someone's name, daimonios, uh like Desdemona. And it actually means, uh, the way it was often used in, in uh, Rome was that this referred to superstitious beliefs, but in this particular situation where Festus is talking to Herod and to Bernice, who are Jews, he wouldn't be using it in that kind of a pejorative sort of manner. He would just be using it with its more literal sense, which has to do with, with religion. So as he's presenting this to uh, Herod, he's saying, uh, I don't know, don't know what to do with this. In verse 20 he says, being at a loss how to investigate such matters... I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. So like uh, many politicians, he doesn't have much backbone and he says, "Okay, we're just going to let you go to go to Jerusalem." But he says when Paul in verse 21, when Paul appealed to uh, to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. So he's rehearsing all of this because he's hoping that um that Agrippa was going to enable him to come up with a legitimate charge to uh, present against uh, against the apostle Paul. So then in verse 22 Agrippa says to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. In verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. It's an interesting word that he uses here. Several times we have uh, a key to understanding what Agrippa is saying is catching the nuance of the Greek verb. The Greek verb is an imperfect tense. now an imperfect tense is continuous action in past time, but it sometimes it has different nuances. sometimes it has uh, as we have in this case here what 's called in the in the in grammar a desiderative imperfect desiderative is from the noun or verb desire and it has to do with a, uh, a use of the imperfect to express someone's wish or desire. And it's translated correctly, at least in the New American Standard, where it says, I would like to hear. In the Greek, it it's simply states um, that I want to hear, but it's that that desire is expressed there, and it indicates something that's gone on. He's been wanting uh, for some time, to hear Paul speak. Paul's reputation has gone before him, and so now he wants to hear Paul uh, and, and his defense. So on verse 23, we shift gears in the next four verses, and we see the opportunity for Paul to come before Agrippa. It's an opportunity for great pomp and circumstance. They want to show off their human authority before the apostle Paul, And Luke emphasizes that for us, and he says, On the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders, so they had this big parade of all of the important people. The commanders here would be the five Kiliarchs, the five commanders of the five Roman cohorts that were stationed at Caesarea. And they came in together along with the... uh, civic leaders the, the those who were the uh leaders in uh, Caesarea the mayor all of the uh city council the city leadership everybody that was involved there in other words every public official that they could find came marching in with Agrippa to sit down and to uh examine the apostle Paul and to hear his defense so in verse 24, Festus gives the introduction, verses 24 down through the end of the chapter, and then Agrippa will, uh, <coughs> request for Paul to speak at the beginning of verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 1. So in verse 24, Festus says, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, Loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. So he makes the point right up front that the issue for the Jews has to do with his punishment. Has to do that this is a capital crime and Paul should be executed. In contrast, he states in verse 25, But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. So if the charges that were brought against him were capital, and he can't find any charges worthy of death. Then basically, what that what we find here is that Festus is admitting that there's no, that that Paul's innocent. There's no legitimate charge against the apostle Paul. He then goes on to say, in verse 25. But I found he committed nothing worthy of death, since he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to send him. Yet and here's the problem in verse 26 I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord now he who's who's my lord this is a title that uh, was given to that he gives to nero now neither augustus nor tiberius allowed themselves to be addressed as my lord this was a term that was that nero took for himself and shows that that he's already uh, has a uh, uh, a desire to be worshipped as deity, and uh, and Festus is going along with that and referring to him as my lord. So he says, I've nothing definite about him to write. In other words, I don't have a specific charge. There's nothing that I have uh, to bring against uh, against against Paul. Therefore I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. So he's sort of passing the buck to all of these in power, hoping that they will come up with some sort of legitimate charge. And he goes on to say, verse 27, For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Well, actually, he can't do that. He, it's not just absurd or unreasonable, as the New King James uh, translates it, but he can't do it. He has to present a charge if this is going to go up the line uh, to Herod. So that brings us to chapter 26. And Agrippa then, who is in charge, as the king says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his apolegeomai, or apologia here, it's not a verb, it's the noun, apologia, his defense. Not a legal defense because this isn't a trial, but he's going to take this opportunity to present uh, his case to these leaders and the opportunity to present the gospel to them. So Agrippa's presiding over the uh, hearing. Paul begins to speak, and he uh, addresses King Agrippa in a way showing respect, but he is not flattering the king. That's what we've seen before when the uh, other leaders than the Jews addressed, uh, addressed Felix and addressed Festus, is they fawn before them, they uh, flattered them, but Paul just uh, defers to them, recognizes their authority, and then moves on to the heart of the matter. He says... Uh, "...in regard to all the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today." Agrippa was well respected in many ways by the Jewish community, even though he had angered them at times. He was uh, more respected than either his father or his uh, great-grandfather." And so he uh, is also respected because he was a, considered a pious Jew. He did uh, know a lot about Judaism and was, uh, you know, practiced it to some degree. Josephus give a, gives us uh, evidence as well that Agrippa was very knowledgeable about Judaism. So as Paul presents the case, he is making it clear that he's talking to somebody who understands the issues. Verse 3, he says, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. He's not just flattering him. He's not just saying that to kind of blow smoke at the king, but because the king was actually considered to be a respected expert in matters related to the Jews. So he then requests that he listen uh, to him patiently. So then starting in verse 4, Paul begins to describe his pre-salvation status. Now, this is a good opportunity as we go through this. This is the last time we're going to hear uh, Paul's testimony in the book of Acts, but it also serves as a way for us to be reviewed on the basics of Paul's conversion. And he starts about what he was before he was saved. He says, um, verse 4, My manner of life from youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, this is well known, my life's an open book, he's saying, everybody knows my uh, my background, my circumstances, that he was a, a Pharisee, that he was a uh, uh, from Tarsus. Uh, verse 5, he says, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest ses, sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So he's emphasizing his respect for the law of Moses, his respect for the traditions of the fathers, and his re- respect for uh, for all of the religious customs of the Jews. And he goes on to say, verse 9, he says, "...and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers." So he zeroes in on the doctrinal issue, that it's, it's not just a matter of a theological dispute, but it is focusing on the promise of the fathers. Now, Herod would have understood this being a student of, of Judaism at the time, first, first ten, or Second Temple Judaism. He would have understood what was going on here in the conflict between the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection, didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in angels, and the Pharisees. So Paul says, "...I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers." the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Now, remember, the promise to Abraham was that he would live in the land that God had given them and that he would own the land he would possess the land that God had given him in Abraham's lifetime the only piece of land he he had was the cave of Machpelah in Hebron where he buried Sarah and where he himself was buried and later Isaac and Rebekah were buried and uh, Jacob and Leah are buried there Rachel is buried over by Bethlehem but he um, so he's alluding to this because according to the Old Testament If Abraham was going to, uh, was going to possess the land and he never possessed it while he was physically alive, this would indicate that, as Jesus also argued, that Abraham would be resurrected in the future so that God's promise would be fulfilled. So this was tied together. This was the hope that Israel had that there would be this future destiny where all the Jews would be in the land, this is the promise given to the twelve tribes. So he goes on to say in verse eight, as he moves beyond the key issue, he begins to uh, focus on uh, the, the the issue in terms of a question. He says, "Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead?" So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he then p- points out his prior persecution of the church and his antagonism to Christianity. He did it, he goes on to say in verse 10, this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received uh, authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That is clearly a statement in reference to to Stephen and the martyrdom of Stephen, but the way he's expressing this here, which we don't have uh, other information on, is that this involved a number of Christians, not just Stephen, not just a few, but that Paul was complicit in the persecution and even the death of numerous Christians. So he is a murderer, he was hostile to Christianity, and he was uh, guilty of, uh, of numerous crimes against the body of Christ. He goes on in verse 11 to say, as I punish them often, notice that time word there, Punish them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. So he wasn't uh, afraid of using some sort of threats, intimidation, and even torture in order to get them to uh commit some sort of violation of the mosaic law and or blasphemy so that they could so that Paul could have them executed. He goes on to say I kept pursuing them even to far, foreign cities while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest. So he talks about being sent on the road to Damascus and as he approached at midday he says, "O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now the second line is talking about the fact that Paul is under conviction and he, and the more he's come under conviction, the more hostile he's become to Christianity. If you were to evaluate the Apostle Paul the day before he he saw the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, you and I would think that this is one individual who is never going to get saved, and that would be our judgment. And it would be wrong. And too often in our daily lives, as we run into people who are hostile to the gospel, maybe even family members and friends, we never know how God is going to work in their lives and really drive the gospel home. And I find too often it's easy for us to just give up. Uh, Well, we've given the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They're just so resistant to it. And we have a tendency, and we all have this tendency, rather than creating more of a conflict, we back away from it. But the, that's not what's happening in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way he is working on the Apostle Paul. And so finally it reached this crisis point, and the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul and challenges him. And immediately Paul recognizes something about who this is who's appearing. He says, "'Who are you, Lord?' It's not what the lordship crowd says. He's not recognizing the lordship of Christ. He's recognizing the authority of the one who's speaking to him. Uh, the word Lord or kurios uh, uh, here was often like the way we use the word sir. Uh, it's more of a polite uh, response, recognizing someone who it, that we should respect and someone in authority. And, of course, the Lord replied to him and said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then we know the story, we've read this several times, that that the Lord Jesus Christ told them to get up and uh, commissions him on the spot. I've appointed you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things that I will show you, I will reveal to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, the Lord's commissioned Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but that doesn't mean he didn't have a ministry to Jews. It's just that his primary focus was to the Gentiles. And his purpose, verse 18, was to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light. That's what repentance is. It is turning from the false to the true. Turning away from idols, turning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To open their eyes, and how would He open their eyes? By giving them the gospel. That's all we can do to open people's eyes. God the Holy Spirit has to open them internally, but He does it, He doesn't do it apart from our giving the gospel. We give them the gospel, and then the Lord uses that, and the Holy Spirit uses that to open their eyes. That they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Every unbeliever is in the dominion of Satan. That's very true, but it's amazing. In fact, I was, I haven't read this article yet, but I was given an article right before class tonight. And the, and it's from the New York Times this last Sunday. And the title is When Demons Are Real. And we have a tendency sometimes to diminish the reality of of the activity of demons. And we live in a world that is a part or a manifestation or, uh, of, the, of the angelic conflict. And that is very real. The trouble is we have a lot of Christians who aren't well taught biblically about spiritual warfare, and they think that what spiritual warfare is is just doing battle with demons. Spiritual warfare is learning to grow spiritually spiritually, and making the right decision. Spiritual warfare doesn't have to do with going into battle with the demons. It has to do with learning to think biblically. Spiritual warfare takes place between your ears, not outside of our bodies. And so uh, this is what's recognized by this statement, that every unbeliever is under the authority, the dominion of Satan, and only when they turn to God by faith in Christ do they shift from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God? And when they do that, Paul gives this as a, the next statement, the purpose clause, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is the, uh, Jesus Christ talking to Paul, that this will be his mission is to... Uh, Give them light so that they can turn to God so that they can receive forgiveness of sins and a future inheritance or possession in the future kingdom. Uh, so, after Paul recites this, he turns to Agrippa and he says, So I did not prove disobedient to this heavenly vision. The Lord Jesus Christ commissioned me and I followed out his orders. Verse 20, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first. And in Jerusalem and then throughout the region of Judea and and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Now, that's an important statement here because many times the word repent, or most of the time the word repent is used in relation to Israel and has a background in Deuteronomy 30. There are two places in Acts when the word repent relates to Gentiles, and we un- understand it in context because it means to turn to God the same way it's used in relation to, to uh, Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and the same way that it's used in the statement of Jesus to Paul that we just read in verse 18, that they are to, that Paul's mission was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't sorrow. It's not remorse. This might accompany it, but primarily it is a mental attitude shift of focus from the false to the true, from idols to God, and then believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul says in the last line, performing deeds appropriate to repentance, repentance is what happens at salvation. But then the question is, after you're saved, then what? We're not saved by works. We don't perform the deeds consistent with repentance in order to get saved. We already are saved. But now that we're saved, we're a new creature in Christ a new family relationship to God, and new responsibilities. And those new responsibilities mean that we are now to live as we should in light of our new situation. In other words, now that we have turned to God, we are to live a new way. It's not to get salvation, but because we have been saved. So now in verse 21, uh, Paul goes on to say, that for that this is the reason that the Jews seized me in the temple and wanted to put me to death. In other words, he's pointing out this is a theological issue. It is not a legal issue in terms of Roman law. And he says, so having obtained help from God, God provided a rescue through the Roman soldiers in the temple, but he attributes that to God as the one who provided that help. He said, I stand this day testifying to both the small and the great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. So he grounds what he's teaching in the Word of God. Now, he summarizes the Old Testament in verse 23, that that what Moses and the prophets said was that the Messiah, you ought to read that as Messiah, not just as Christ. Christos is the Greek word, which means the same thing as Messiah, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so the focal point here is that, that the Messiah would be brought back to life, uh, the sign being the sign of uh, Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Now, at this point, he's presented the gospel to Agrippa, he's presented it to kings, he's presented it to all the rulers, and at this point, Festus interrupts him. Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. This is a typical response from unbelievers, is that we're irrational, and in fact, they're the ones that are irrational. Paul's response is simply, says, no, I'm not the one out of my mind. Most excellent, Festus. He doesn't lose his manners. He says... But I utter words of sober truth, for the king, notice this subtle appeal to Herod, for the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this thing wasn't done in a corner. In other words, this thing wasn't done in a shadow somewhere where nobody knew what was going on. Herod Agrippa knows this. And then notice as he's witnessing this whole crowd, he's focused on Agrippa, and he says to him, Do you, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. He's putting him on the spot and he's asking him basically to make a decision in relationship to the gospel. And Agrippa replies to Paul Now, I've got the New American Standard, and this is not correctly translated i mean it's it's a strict translation but it doesn't catch what's really going on and somebody asked me about i don't think they're here tonight somebody asked me about this not long ago where agrippa said in a short time you will persuade me to become a, a christian and that's he's not saying that that making a statement that paul was about to but that Paul wished to. It's the same kind of desiderative imperfect we, we saw earlier. He's saying, are, are, in, a, in another sense, you're trying to convince me to become a Christian. He's not saying, oh, you've come really close, but you haven't quite closed the deal. And so, no, because you didn't close the deal, I'm not going to become a Christian. That's not the sense of this imperfect tense. He says, you have tried, you've attempted to persuade me to become a Christian, but he has resisted it. So Paul said, "says in verse twenty nine, I would wish to God that in a shorter long time, not only you but everyone here would become as I am, except for the except for being a prisoner. That's what he means by except for these chains. And so this brings the uh, interview to an end. Agrippa uh, stands up, and Bernice and all of the uh, others, the leaders with them, and they go off to a side and they start to uh, conference about what the penalty should be. And they, they all agree that Paul hasn't done anything worthy of imprisonment. And Agrippa states to Festus, well, this man would have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So in a real sense, what has happened is that Paul by appealing to Caesar, is bringing about what God had promised him, and that is that he would take the gospel to Rome and that he would be heard uh, in Rome and before Caesar and before kings and that he would uh, proclaim that. And so next time we'll come back and look at another fascinating chapter in Paul's journey, and that is his voyage to Rome and the shipwreck that occurs along the way and how God is continuously protecting him and providing for him. And God does the same thing for us. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. God in his sovereignty and in his providence watches over us to bring us to those uh, places in our life where he wants us to be. It may not be where we want to be, but it's where he wants us to be so that we can have a hearing for the gospel And he's the one who provides the protection. So we just need to learn to relax and let God move us in that direction and he will get us where he wants us to be and we don't need to worry about all of the other details that usually distract us from fulfilling God's plan for our life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to review through this information to be reminded of your protection for Paul, the way in which you worked through the systems, through the legal system of Rome, uh, through the um, leadership, even though they are pagan and unbelievers, nevertheless we see that your hand of guidance is, is upon them in order to bring about the transference of Paul from uh, Caesarea to Rome. In the same way, we know that you are working behind the scenes in the details of our lives, that even when things look difficult or impossible, Even when things are not what we would wish, nevertheless, we know that that you are bringing about good, even though others would see it as evil. And Father, we just pray that we might keep our focus upon you, and especially with the coming new year, that this might be an even greater year for each of us in terms of our spiritual life and our walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.